0: Well, I'm starting to worry that I'm kind of a broken record when it comes to the lectionary because, again, I've got a beef. The lectionary, in its wisdom, is giving us part one of a two-part argument that Paul is making here in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. But it goes on to chapter 10. And not only do we not get chapter 10 any time in this year, we don't get it in any other year either. We don't get it on any obscure feast day. We're just left to have to find that for ourselves. But chapter ten completes what Paul begins in chapter eight. Now, when we first hear chapter eight, as Perry, we may be thinking of that as kind of like when one of those ads comes on TV that is clearly not directed at you, right? Um, For some of you, it's the beer ads, or it's the car ads, or it's the ad for certain medical products that you couldn't possibly use. When Paul says now about food sacrificed to idols, most of us are going to say, well, that's not my problem. I don't see any of that going on around me, so I guess I can just kind of skim over this part not so fast. Now, I think most of us are not specifically in the situation that the 1st century Corinthians were in, but the principles do apply. For us to get how they do, we need to understand what was going on. So the way that food sacrifice to idols was an important issue for the church in the 1st century was that basically your local butcher shop, was right next to the idol temple. Meat would be sacrificed in the course of these idolatrous practices, the practices of pagan worship. Some part of the meat would be consumed on the altar, some part would be taken by the priest, but most of it would be sold as a means of sustaining the temple. And so if you were a good Jew, you would not be getting your meat that way. You, in fact, might not eat any meat that you didn't raise yourself because if the meat was sacrificed to an idol and you of course are a good monotheist and you know that there is only one god and you don't want to have anything to do with any pagan practices then you might well not use those butcher shops at the same time if you're a pagan that's completely natural That's the way you grew up. That's what you always did. This needs to be a problem when people who have come from both Jewish and pagan backgrounds are together in the church, and when they have learned and owned the very clear teaching that there is only one God, that an idol is nothing, and that people who are waving things around in the idol temples are not communicating with anybody. All they're doing is a bunch of weird mumbo-jumbo. So, Paul says, we know, in verse 4, that an idol is nothing at all in the world. No such thing. There's only one God. But here's the problem, Paul says in verse 7, not everybody knows this. Some of your neighbors don't know this and if they see you acting in a way that doesn't fit what you claim to believe, at least in their eyes, well, that could be a problem. It also could be a problem for your brothers and sisters in the church, people that Paul speaks of as the weaker brothers and sisters. Maybe it's somebody who was Jewish, and like some of my jewish friends have a rule they they won't eat shellfish in the house so you have the crab feast out on the back deck or or maybe it's people who were pagans and were enthusiastic participants in the pagan rituals and now they've come to faith in the one lord they understand that Jesus is his messiah and his lord and the lord and now it feels weird when they eat that meat that they got at the butcher shop. Maybe maybe they feel so uncomfortable that they think they probably shouldn't do it. And yet somebody next to them is chowing away, which is why Paul says, look, we need to keep all of this in perspective. First of all, food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we eat or if, and we're no better if we do. So there, very clearly, Paul is aligning himself theologically with the strong brothers. He is saying that those who are weak have not fully embraced, have not fully come into the understanding that there is one Lord and an idol is nothing. And you get the sense that as people mature, in Paul's mind, they should come to recognize this reality and not have a problem at all but the problem is that the exercise of this freedom even if you're entirely free even if your conscience is clear even if you can grill that steak and not have it matter to you at all who said what words over it when they when they were in the temple before it was sold to you the exercise of your freedom isn't just happening for you you're in community there are people that you care about, or you should care about, who will see what you're doing. And if your weaker brother is, sees you eating in the idol temple, not even buying it at the butcher shop and taking it home, but eating there, well, I guess that could embolden him to eat what's been sacrificed to idols, even though he doesn't feel that he can do that in good conscience. What happens when you do that is that this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Just because you know, just because you're right when you know, doesn't mean that you just operate according to that knowledge without having any concern for the impact on people around you especially your brothers and sisters in the church. So why is it important that we read this passage? Well, first of all, because people can get hurt. Paul doesn't want people to get hurt. Because not only does it mean people are getting hurt, the next verse, 12, he says, And when you sin against your brothers in this way, and you wound those who are weak in conscience, you sin against Christ. So the stakes aren't just whether somebody gets their feelings hurt or, or if they're bothered. No, it's, it's sinful. You're harming your brother, and when you harm your brother or sister, you are sinning against Christ. So let's skip ahead to the middle of chapter 10 after Paul goes on a couple of those famous Pauline rabbit trails. He gets back to talking about idolatry and eating in verse 14 of chapter 10. He says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm I'm speaking to sensible people. And of course, whenever Paul says something like that, he's implicitly saying, and you're not being very sensible right now. Judge for yourselves what I say. Isn't the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Isn't the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I mean, think about the people of Israel. Don't those who eat the sacrifices, aren't they the ones who participate in the altar? In that case, it would have been the priests as well as people bringing an offering. So do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that the idol is anything? No, absolutely not, Paul says. The the thing is, though, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You can't have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Jesus does not cheerfully cohabitate with demons. He drives them out. He exercises them. I was told about a conversation among some colleagues not long ago. My friend Ramel McCall, he's the rector of Holy Trinity in West Baltimore, and some of his colleagues from uh, some larger, more established churches were talking about the difficulties of Preaching texts in which you have exorcisms and demons. And he said, That's not a problem for me. I I grew up in West Baltimore. I don't have the luxury of not believing in demons. Now, this stuff in the minds of the New Testament authors is very real. It's not to be trifled with. What, you think you're stronger than God? You're going to try to make him jealous? Come on now. You see, everything's permissible. And here Paul is probably quoting one of their slogans. And yeah, it's true. Everything is permissible. He says elsewhere that in 1 Timothy that nothing is, everything good comes from God. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. But not everything is beneficial. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean that it's constructive. So you shouldn't be seeking your own good, Paul says. You need to be looking after the good of others. So you can eat anything sold in the meat market, and you don't need to ask about it. You don't need to go up and say, well, now, was was that? Well, you can ask if it was organic or free-range or pasture-raised or whatever. You can do that. That's fine. But you don't need to ask, well, was that sacrificed in the idol temple? He says, no, it doesn't matter. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal, though, and you want to go, great. Eat whatever's put before you. No, no problem there. But if they tell you, here, this hamburger was offered in sacrifice, that's the place you need to put the brakes on. You need to do that for the sake of the person who told you because you don't want to participate in that and for the sake of conscience. And I'm talking about his conscience, Paul says, not yours. I mean, you, your conscience is fine. Why should your freedom be judged by somebody else's conscience? If, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, and why am I being denounced? Because of something that I, I thank God for. Now, whether you eat or drink, Paul says, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, be they Jews or Greeks or the Church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, because I'm not seeking my own good. I'm seeking the good of many that they may be saved. You see, when the weaker brother is harmed, then harm is done to him, and harm is done in that you have sinned against Christ. But the body of Christ is also harmed, the unity. Of the church is harmed, which really is what Paul is jealous for. That's his concern that underlies everything he's talking about in this letter. This is a deeply fractured, divided church. They've got all kinds of problems, all kinds of reasons that they are sniping at one another, that they're forming factions, that some people are caught up in all kinds of misbehavior and they aren't able to, to rein that in. No, we are one body because we share in the one bread. And so we have to be considerate of those who, among us who have scruples. There's an important caveat there, and here it is. There's a difference between being offended and taking offense. If something happens and you're offended, somebody who is offended by that. You find that objectionable. You see somebody doing something that, that uh, you believe is is impermissible or that, that would violate your conscience if you did it. Uh, I, I have had a number of orthopedic adventures. My, my wife Mary loves watching these videos where people fall in all kinds of uncomfortable and spectacular ways. I can't stand watching those. I think about all the times that I fell in uncomfortable ways and the surgeries and the all the, the physical therapy. It, she can enjoy that and that's fine. It, if I watch it, it bothers me. But that's not the same thing as deliberately taking offense. See, if I keep sitting there and watching her watch these videos, and if I get all grumpy about that, if I put myself in high dudgeon and say, do you not realize how offensive that is? Well, then I'm just being a jerk. Like those soccer players, you know, they, somebody brushes them on the shoulder and they fall back like they should get an Oscar for some of these performances. All this pearl clutching that goes on, and there is no place that it is done better than in the church where you have people will say, oh, well, somebody might be offended if we were. No, you should be considerate. You should always be concerned somebody might be. But nine times out of ten when I hear somebody say, well, somebody might be offended by that, what they mean is, I don't like it. I don't like that people feel like they're free to do that. I don't think they should be free to do that. Think about the lady who visited my church several years ago while I was preaching a series that uh, went through some pretty racy parts of the prophet Ezekiel. And uh, I was talking about the very angry letter she wrote to me with a colleague who had had a similar reaction from someone when he was preaching through the Song of Songs, which as you may know, is a book basically all about sex. This one lady came up to him after he was preaching and said, well, I don't think that should even be in the Bible. You're welcome to your opinion. You can take that up with the Holy Spirit. No, it's it's not the same thing to be offended as it is to take offense and to pretend that you are caring for those who are weak or even worse, to place yourself in that Costume is also harmful to the unity of the body of Christ. Is also a way that you undermine both the liberty that we have and the true witness that there is one Lord, that an idol is nothing. And so we do everything, as Paul says, everything, to the glory of God, seeking not our own good but the good of many, that they may be saved. Amen.